Welcome to this episode of Church Grammar. Today's episode is brought to you by Lexum Press. Lexum Press seeks to produce works that will increase biblical literacy in conversation with the great tradition of Christian theological reflection. The Lived Theology series explores aspects of Christian doctrine through the eyes of men and women who practiced it. Volumes include Abraham Kuyper, John Chrysostom, Samuel Pierce, and forthcoming volumes on Jonathan Edwards, Irenaeus, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, and more. These books illuminate the vital contributions made by these figures throughout the history of the church. Learn more at LexumPress.com. Today's episode is a short talk from my article for Mere Orthodoxy called In Defense of Premodern Exegesis. And what I do here is just talk through a little bit about how I was raised theologically and as terms of uh, exegesis and interpretation of what to think about the literal sense of scripture versus the fuller sense and how I came to grow to love pre-modern exegesis and how the church fathers talked about exegesis and their method for coming to theological and even exegetical conclusions. And I want to make an argument here as well that evangelicals can appreciate much of what the church fathers have to offer in terms of interpretation, which I found in my experience is not always the case. Sometimes evangelicals don't appreciate it or think that there's something crazy going on there. And I want to make the case that actually they give us a good foundation for the things that we as evangelicals care about. So I hope you'll appreciate my talk. As always, we are brought to you by B&H Academic. Go to bhacademic.com to find out more about their latest books and offerings. We're also brought to you by the Christian Standard Bible. Go to csbible.com to find out more about that English translation. And now here's my short talk defending pre-modern exegesis. But first, no big deal. During my early training as a pastor and theologian, many of my mentors warned me that emulating the exegetical method of the church fathers is a dangerous game. Now, their concerns were typically twofold. First, there was the concern that the church fathers were forerunners to Roman Catholicism, and so their exegetical method and theological conclusions were inherently opposed to the tenets of the Protestant Reformation that we as evangelicals hold so dear. Secondly, they're concerned about the so-called, uh, quote, allegorical elements of patristic exegesis, which are seen as dangerously unbound from the biblical text that en enable the interpreter to, you know, make scripture say whatever he or she wants it to say. Now, these concerns can be legitimate. Certainly, most Protestants would disagree with many of the Church Fathers' conclusions, especially with respect to ecclesiology, which, of course, is largely informed by exegesis. Further, I think we would see in certain patristic writers an allegorical tendency that might seem wild or just plain speculative. However, the overly modernistic approach to the census literalis or the literal sense of scripture that was handed to me, it tasted stale. And I went to scripture to feast on the bread of life. In particular, the overly modernistic view of the literal sense of scripture insisted in particular on recreating the historical backgrounds uh, behind the biblical text and a painstaking psychoanalysis of the human author. And this left me wanting more. So as a reaction, I found comfort in pairing some of these important literary and historical concerns with the census plenior, the fuller sense that recognizes the divine inspiration of scripture and the larger theological themes present in the biblical storyline. Now, I recognize that there's a lot more we can say about the literal sense and the fuller sense and how they 
go together, how maybe Martin Luther, for example, saw the literal sense as containing the fuller sense. And there's a lot that we could talk about there, but just generally how I was taught and how I came to it was this idea that literal sense was really nothing more than just historical critical method, trying to recreate the background of the text. Didn't have a lot to say about theology. And in fact, at times was suspicious of theological interpretation or asking too many theological questions. So when I was introduced to the church fathers and their writings on scripture, my love for God in scripture was revived in a way that I couldn't have imagined by the way that I was told to think about them by people before me. They insisted that God was not only the source of scripture, as I was taught, but also the point of scripture. And to my surprise, they cared a lot about both elements of the text, both the human authorial intent and the divine author's larger story. So no longer did I treat the Bible as just another piece of ancient literature, though, of course, I was told it was a special piece of ancient literature, but nonetheless, literature. But instead, I began to view it as God's special and unique word to his people with a story centered on the saving work of Christ and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. The division between the literal and fuller sense in modern hermeneutics was overtaken in my mind by pre-modern exegesis's unified method. Thus, in my experience, pre-modern exegesis, particularly what's been called the quadriga or the fourfold method is a method that I appreciated. And I think it's a method that enables evangelicals to stay tethered to the biblical text, which of course is important, while also rigorously mining the depths of scripture's divine inspiration and canonical unity. Indeed, I think for any evangelical, exegetical concern should always be rooted in what I would call a theological canonical method of interpretation. The concerns are theological because we affirm that the triune God is the author of scripture. And therefore we have canonical concerns because we know that scripture is a unified witness to God's revelation of himself. Put another way, the unity of the Godhead, three in one, necessarily entails the unity of scripture, the 66 in one. The fourfold method then is a helpful way for evangelicals to exegete scripture according to our own theological and canonical commitments that God is both triune and that scripture is unified in the story that it tells about who God is. Now, I'm not arguing that every evangelical should use the fourfold method or that the fourfold method is the true way to do evangelical exegesis. Rather, what I hope to do here is encourage evangelicals to push aside the false concerns that I mentioned earlier and that were taught to me and consider this patristic exegetical method as a helpful way to faithfully read, preach, and teach the Bible. So let's spend a little bit of time just looking through the fourfold method and the questions and concerns that it addresses. Now, it's important to remember, of course, that pre-modern exegesis is not entirely monolithic. Indeed, from Justin Martyr to Irenaeus to Origen to Athanasius to Aquinas and everyone in between, ancient theologians often use different terminology, rhetorical strategies, and biblical texts in their engagement, particularly with false teachers, because much of what they wrote and how they articulated the Christian faith came in response to disparate theologies and unique situations. That said, the rule of faith laid out by Irenaeus, I think, serves as a helpful foundation for patristic exegesis moving forward for centuries to come and even for us today. So if you were to look at the demonstration of apostolic preaching by Irenaeus, you would see in there a summary of this rule of faith, this idea that the unity of the Godhead necessarily entails the unity of Scripture, that the Father, Son, and Spirit are united in the divine life and that they inspire scripture that is unified. Thus, we read scripture as a unified whole or a unified story, if you like that framework, 
because it's authored by and points to a unified triune God and his work in the world. This rule helped Irenaeus combat Gnostics, for example, when they sought to unhitch Jesus from the Old Testament or place biblical authors at odds with one another. Over time, the rule of faith set a trajectory for biblical exegesis among the church fathers, eventually resulting in the fourfold method. This method, though unsurprisingly employed differently by different authors and different passages, can be boiled down to four basic tenets. So first, there's the literal sense, which explains the basic textual features, historical context, and authorial intent of the passage. This serves as the foundation for the other three senses that we will talk about because we cannot rightly flesh out the three senses, the other three senses, without digging into the text itself and understanding what the human author is intending to convey. So in my early training, this type of literal sense was treated as kind of the only sense. However, some pastors and theologians assert that the literal sense, again, can encompass the other senses that follow, and that's fair enough. So again, I don't want to say that the only definition of the literal sense is a flat modernistic approach that ignores divine inspiration. Instead, I believe the fourfold method is a helpful way to battle against the worst versions of a literal reading by keeping the other three senses in mind. This leads us to the typological or allegorical sense, which brings together the Old and New Testaments into a unified canon centered on Christ. While some forms of allegory in pre-modern exegesis feel fanciful at best, not all patristic theologians operated this way. In fact, many simply saw scripture as a unified story centered on Christ and thus sought to make sense of Jesus' own claims and the biblical author's own conviction that all of scripture speaks about him. Of course, we see that in Luke 24, in John 5, Galatians 4, Hebrews 1, and other places. So if one reads patristic authors such as Athanasius or Gregory of Nazianzus, they will not find swaths of fanciful interpretations of the text that make no sense, but rather they will see an impulse to tie any allegorical sense to the scriptural passages and patterns that arise from the literal sense. Third, there's the moral or tropological sense, which pays attention to the, you could say, moral of the story or the ethical and practical implications of the text. Now, while my mentors would have downplayed the fourfold sense and want to dissect every nugget of literary and historical evidence in the text, their sermons would often reflect one long series of tropological insights. Most evangelicals and theologians and pastors would agree that application comes after exegesis, but many don't teach hermeneutics this way. So the tropological sense then reminds us that application is important and dependent on a serious engagement with the text first. Fourth and finally, we should note the anagogical sense, which deals with the eschatological implications or the end goal of the text. This sense obviously flows from the other four. It's important to consider this sense separately, however, because a tropological sense may only provide immediate application or response. The immediacy of the text implications is important, of course, but we also want to point others to the ultimate hope found in our triune God's promise to redeem all things. So as we think about these four senses, it bears repeating that the fourfold method, like any exegetical method, can lead to different interpretations and conclusions, both good and bad. So of course, I don't endorse every use of quadriga in church history. I prefer reading patristic authors over any in church history, and I certainly at times scratch my head even then at some of their interpretations. But overall, they are instructive in helping us remember the theological and canonical priorities of interpreting scripture. So let me conclude with one example from the opening chapter of Athanasius's On the Incarnation, in which he addresses various false teachings about salvation, the Son's divinity, the Father's activity in creation, and the unity between the Father and Son. 
In his response, Athanasius ties together several biblical passages to assert the consistency of the biblical witness to the Father and Son's divinity, unity, and activity in creation. So first, at the beginning of On the Incarnation, Athanasius asserts that the Gnostics, for example, quote, shut their eyes to the obvious meaning of scripture when they say that the Father didn't create the universe. He makes this argument in part by noting Jesus's teaching on divorce in Matthew 19, explicitly where it refers to the Father's work in creation. He concludes that if John 1 says that the Son was involved in creation, then how could, quote, someone different other than the Father of Christ be there too? Second, he says that the Epicureans and Plato are wrong for saying that there is no mind behind the universe or that the universe was merely arranged from some sort of pre-existing matter. He makes this argument by going to Genesis 1 through John 1 and Hebrews 11. He says, quote, we know that because there is mind behind the universe, it did not originate itself. Because God is infinite, not finite, it was not made from preexistent matter, but out of nothing and out of non-existence, absolute and utter God brought it into being through the word. He says as much in Genesis, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, end quote. For Athanasius then, quote, he made all things out of nothing through his own word, our Lord Jesus Christ. And this is true theologically because scripture attests to it clearly. Third and finally, Athanasius wraps up his point by showing that creation is now in its current state because of Adam and Eve's fall in Genesis 2 to 3, not because God is an imperfect or misguided creator, rather man should be blamed for the state of death and corruption. But he says, this is why the incarnation happened. Quote, you may be wondering why we are discussing the origin of men when we set out to talk about the word becoming man. The former subject is relevant to the latter for this reason. It was our sorry case that caused the word to come down, our transgression that called out his love for us, so that he made haste to help us and to peer among us. It is we who were the cause of his taking human form, and for our salvation, that in his great love he was both born and manifested in a human body. So here Athanasius summarizes his case by using scripture to defend some of the basic tenets of orthodox theology, salvation, the son's divinity, and the father's activity in creation, and how this informs their unity and vice versa. For Athanasius then, the biblical text drives our theology, and the text was his foundation for arguing against heresy. So this is one classic example of pre-modern exegesis being rooted in the biblical witness and the layers of significance that then rise from it. May we follow their example of biblical fidelity in theological